I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thank you, Jim. You may be seated. Well, the last uh, few weeks we have been working our way through uh, John's gospel in particular, John chapter 17. And um, already in this Lord's Prayer we have seen um, Jesus praying for himself. Um, We have... uh, Notice that uh, last time we were together that Jesus was praying for his disciples, and uh, we noted a number of things there, praying for unity, praying for uh, their preservation, praying for their ministry, Um, and today um, we are coming face to face with uh, just the reality here that Jesus is ultimately praying for all who will believe the apostles' message through the ages. So if, if you've come to the place in your life where you have experienced the grace of God in regeneration, if, if you have humbled yourself to the message of the gospel through confessing your sin, through believing that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins, and that through his forgiveness that you are reconciled to him, Jesus now in these verses prays for you. And I just want you to pause and I want you to contemplate that. That here we have in God's word, Jesus praying for you 2,000 years later. This is what he's praying for. Again, notice, notice the, the, the verse 20. I do not ask for these only. That's referring to the disciples that he's just been praying about. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the disciples went out and preached And that word has multiplied through the ages. And if you've embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus here is praying for you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? 2006, I had the privilege to go to Israel. And I remember one of the locations that we stopped in was what they believed to be the upper room, where Jesus likely was praying this prayer. He was praying in the upper room with the disciples. Whether that location is the actual one, I don't know. But it was... It was something that I think was amazing, and I wish I had a better understanding of that place and what took place as I do now, having gone through John 17, that that there, in that location, or somewhere near there, is where Jesus prayed for me. Now, friends, it's not that you have to go to Israel and go to a room to somehow, you know, get the warm fuzzies that this is where Jesus did it. The reality is it's just as significant, it's just as real here in Castro Valley over 2,000 years later. Jesus, in that upper room with his disciples, was praying for you. 
He was praying for me. And we can soak it all in. And so tonight, tonight, today, this morning, as we are gathered together, as we are thinking through this prayer, um, we need to, st- to settle in the fact that, that Jesus has us in mind. It's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? That God would think about little old you or little old me or insignificant me or you. And yet he does. Now this prayer in particular is a prayer that is rooted in God's glory. In verses 20 through 26, the glory of the Father and of Christ is the mortar that keeps the bricks of this prayer together. Just kind of highlight with me, if you would, verse 22. Here we have the glory that is given. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, speaking about the believers here, that they may be one, even as we are one. So there's this glory that is given from the Father to Christ to those who believe. Notice verse 24, the glory that is seen. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. So it's a glory that's given. It's also a glory that is seen by those who are believers. It's also a glory that is explained. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which which Uh, you have loved me, may be in them and I in them. And the point here is this. The word glory isn't used there, but the essence of what glory is, is talked about there, and that is his name, his character, his will, who he is, what he desires, what he wants, what he has revealed. The word glory is talking about making someone known. So we have the glory of the Father being being, uh, demonstrated through the Son, to the disciples, then to all who believe, this glory then fashions and shapes Jesus' prayer right here in this text. And so the the glory, this, this love that is given to Jesus by the Father is this glory that is part of this prayer, is, is, is fashioned this prayer. And, and uh, I want to divide this, this prayer into three sections, three arenas that I think are accurate and, and hopefully helpful for us as we think through uh, what Jesus is praying about. It's the glory of God on earth, the glory of God in heaven, and the glory of God through eternity. The glory of God on earth, and Jesus is going to pray about that. The glory of God in heaven, and then ultimately the glory of God through eternity. Now let's just pause for a moment as we prepare ourselves now for what Jesus is going to pray. Lord, teach us, we ask, Shape us, mold us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, that we would be humble before your word, that we would embrace it, that we would rejoice over what we are going to learn today. Lord, that we would comprehend it and we would apply it and we would be discerning with it, Lord. Help us, uh, Lord, to be mindful that you are right now at work in us, that your Holy Spirit is present and, uh, Lord, we might be distracted or be drawn away by something, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit is going to be pushing us back to your truth. And Lord, just allow me to be your messenger, Lord. We want you to be seen today. Lord, not not Rod Phillips. We want you to be revealed and declared. And we want what you have done in your prayer, Lord, to be understood so that we as your children can be strengthened and that those who don't know you, Lord, can come to the place of belief 
and ultimately have life. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. So let's jump in now to what I'm calling the glory of God on earth. The glory of God on earth. Now, let's read verses 21 and 22. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so there is this theme in this part of the prayer for those who believe for unity, this prayer for unity. And we saw that last week as we looked at Jesus' prayer for the disciples. Unity was a big theme, and it is a big theme here. We're not just going to say ditto because this is a, a little different because this is not just for the disciples. Remember, the disciples were those, I want to say, ones charged with the responsibility of sharing the word of God when Jesus left. And there was a need then for those who were leaders in the church to be united together on a number of fronts. But the unity that's been talked about here um, is something that we must all recognize that there is a responsibility for us to uphold, to embrace, and to live in. And so what is the unity that Jesus is praying for? First of all, I want to say this. It is a spiritual unity. It is a spiritual unity. What does this unity mean and not mean? Now, I'm going to say something that, that's going to be so incredibly profound, and yet at the same time, it is so incredibly profound. Okay? You're going to like, well, yeah, that's obvious, but then you're going to think about it and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And here it is. You ready for it? Real Christian unity is for real Christians. Real Christian unity is for real Christians. In other words... You cannot have true Christian unity among those who are not truly followers of Christ. So any attempt to find unity among people who simply name Christ as their Savior, but who truly don't believe that Christ is their Savior, is a lost cause. Because True unity, true Christian unity can only be experienced by those who are true followers of Christ. In other words, those who put their faith and trust in the Lord and what he has accomplished selflessly and sub, uh, substitutionarily uh, in his sacrifice on the cross. Those who believe in the gospel that is preached and taught and revealed by the apostles those who believe in the message that the Father sent through the Son to mankind, those are the real Christians who will find unity. Now, there is certainly religious unity out there. And that is a unity that seeks to manufacture or engineer a visible and external form of unity. But it is a pseudo-unity that is based on a pseudo-Jesus. So the beginning question that we need to ask is this. Who is the Jesus that we believe in? Again, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, Jesus is praying, through their what? Verse 20. Through their word. Well, whose word? The disciples' word. The disciples who would become the apostles, their word, their ministry, their witness. So 
the question then is this, who is the Jesus that is the basis of our unity? The Jesus that these followers believed in is the same Jesus that was proclaimed, defended, and made known by the apostles. You see the connection here. And these are the ones whom we have recorded in the book of Acts, who have also theologically developed an understanding of who Jesus is in the epistles. So the Jesus that is there for us to believe is the Jesus that was preached and taught and revealed by the apostles. Well, where did they get that understanding of Jesus? From Jesus himself. And where did Jesus get his message according to John's gospel? From the Father? You see how this is all working? It all goes back now to the source, the Father who reveals himself through the Son to the apostles and now to all who will believe. And so it's important that we understand here then that this unity is a spiritual unity. Now hear this. It was the message sent from the Father about the Son through Jesus to the apostles that he was the one sent from the Father as the Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah who would have to die in our place to pay for our sin and the sin of all who would come to him. This is the gospel sent down from above that brings satisfaction to those who are hungering, that causes the blind to see, that satisfies the quenching thirst of those um, who are desiring water. So when Jesus is presented, and it's a Jesus that is void of the apostles' teaching, in other words, a Jesus that is not compatible with the teaching and the life of Jesus, a Jesus that was not the Messiah that is sent from on high to be the Lamb of God slain for the world, when that kind of Jesus is presented as the basis for unity, it is a false, manufactured, engineered pseudo-Jesus. Now, if you have a false, engineered, manufactured pseudo-Jesus, then you have a pseudo-gospel. And when you have a pseudo-gospel, then you have a pseudo-unity. Okay? In other words, the key question here is this. Who is the question, or whom is the question? Whom is the Jesus, is what I meant to say. Who is the Jesus that you must believe that is the basis of your unity? It's a really, really important question. I want you to think about a couple here. Okay? There is, um, come on. me while I get this here. Technology is not helping me. All right. All right. Well, there is, if, if we go with liberal theology, liberal theology teaches that Jesus is the best example of man who has lived on the face of this earth. Therefore, we need to recognize that the gospel is for us to be living our lives like Jesus, loving others, caring for others, ministering to those who are poor and suffering. You know, the kind of Jesus that went and healed people of their diseases and cared and provided food and, and all that kind of stuff. And true unity then is when we all together recognize that we need to be like Jesus. Now, 
there are elements of truth in what's being said here. Would I say to you, we need to be like Jesus? Absolutely. The question is, who is the Jesus that we need to be like? Is Jesus limited to being a good example for us to follow? The answer is no. But is Jesus a good example for us to follow? Yes, if we understand the Jesus that the apostles were revealing. Okay? Liberation theology sees Jesus as that, that radical um, revolutionary who comes and fights for the people against the oppressive uh, overseers. In that context, it would be Rome. And ultimately, through his presence and his rallying and his following, they were able to get out from under the yoke of the bondage of, of that particular um, oppressive uh, system. And so the gospel then, in that context, when you have a Jesus who's a revolutionary, that gospel then is to find all you can, do all you can to make sure that people are not enslaved to bondage or are not oppressed in the context of that kind of bondage. And so we unite together to say, hey, let's all work together to make sure that anyone who is feeling oppressed, anyone who is enslaved, needs to be released. Now hear this. This is what Martin Luther King believed. And when he talked about, I have a dream, when he talks about getting into the promised land, he's not talking about the gospel that is revealed by the apostles. He's talking about a different Jesus who is a liberator and a liberator that, that uh, you know, removes the oppression of those who are overseeing and enslaving people. There's an element of truth there because the oppression that we experience is not the oppression of people, although that may be true. The oppression we experience is the oppression of sin. And it's Jesus who, who dying on the cross, liberates us from the bondage of sin. And so there is a, there's, it's, it's really subtle, isn't it? How we can get a wrong Jesus. And if we have a wrong Jesus, we have a wrong gospel. And if we have a wrong gospel, then the whole cry for unity is a wrong cry for unity. It's distorted. It's manufactured. It's created. Then you get the, uh, um, the, the kind of people that would be um, therapeutic in nature. This would be the crowd that would say, well, you know what? God was in heaven, and he was lonely, and um, he, he wanted to create a world where he could create man in his image so he could have fellowship with man and satisfy that longing he had. And so, so when, when man ultimately rebelled against him, God just, he, he didn't like it, he was distraught, and so he provided a way and sent his son to, to, to go and to die on the cross, and through what Jesus has done on the cross, if, if man now is, is emotionally scarred, if he's, if he's unhealthy in his, in his being, so to speak, he can be restored in this relationship, he can have the hole in his heart filled by God. And so the unity then is based on this, you know, we need to get together and make sure that everyone feels the healing touch of God. That preaches. And we, we, we sang a song here, you know, by his wounds we are healed. There is that kind of language. But you see, the therapeutic movement comes along and they steal the language there and they say, ah, the healing that's talking about is emotional healing. No, the healing that's talked about here is the healing of sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin, not for your emotional struggles. 
Now certainly he died for all of that because the person who is walking with God is hopefully going to be at peace when they trust God. That's a whole other subject. But you see how, how a wrong view of Jesus can produce a wrong gospel, right? And that wrong gospel then can produce a wrong cry for unity. And that's why so much of the church today is struggling with an understanding of what does unity look like. You know, let's all gather together in our community, all churches, all denominations, and we'll join together in some endeavor. We'll set aside our differences because we want everyone in our community to see that we are one. The problem is you're not one because not everyone who is part of that group is a true follower of Jesus. The unity here is not something that we somehow manufacture and create so other people can see. The unity is there because we are truly God's children. It is a spiritual unity. And it comes as a result of the conversion we experience and the Holy Spirit that comes and resides in us. He is residing in the heart of every true believer. It is He who then unites us all together in Christ. So that unity is already there. It's a true unity, not a pseudo-unity. Now, so this true spiritual unity is both objective and subjective. It's objective in that it is based on the real Jesus revealed by the Father and taught by the apostles. If you come up with any other Jesus, it's a false Jesus. All right, according to what Jesus is praying, it is also subjective in that we must believe that message about Jesus. All right? So it's spiritual. Secondly, this unity is tangible. When, when, God, when Jesus says here that, the, that those believers are to be united here, there is an outworking of that unity. So let's read now in verse 21 again. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the point I want us to see here is that there's a so that, there is an impact on the world. It is tangible. It can be seen. It can be touched. It can be experienced by those living around us. The character of unity is seen in the interaction and cooperation and longing and the will of the Godhead. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, that we can be one, you know, just as we are, they can be one just as we are one, it's not like, you know, Jesus and the Father just doing high fives and, you know, chilling out and that kind of, there, there, there's this commitment to, to, to character, to, to paradigms, to, to beliefs that are there. And so those things flesh out in what Jesus chooses to do and what God chooses to do in his dealings with mankind. It's consistent. So if we are God's children and we are united together, there are things that are going to naturally flow out. They're going to ooze out, so to speak, of that spiritual unity that we all have as Christians. There's going to be a common commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's going to be a common respect for God and his creation. There's going to be a common love for fellow man. There's going to be a common compassion expressed in selfless giving of time and resources. There's going to be a common humility and, and seeking of peace in relationships. There's going to be a common loyalty to God's instructions regarding how to live. 
This is all a result of being in Christ and being united in Christ. These are commonalities that flow out of what God has revealed about what that looks like and, and the Holy Spirit living in us desires and puts those desires in there. So it is a unity that is visible, but it is also a unity that has its source in the unity of the Godhead. Unlike the Godhead, however, our unity, although spiritual, being fleshed out, is flawed. Why? Because although we are united, often what we flesh out is not pure. It is sinful, right? Anyone here ever acted sinfully, although you're a Christian? Of course you have. And, and, and the point there is this, that we look to the Godhead to say there's perfect unity, and we try and replicate that by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, and he is in us. Now, it can be probably best explained by Jesus' words in Matthew 22. So turn to Matthew 22. Jesus is asked a question, Master, which is the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, beginning at verse 36. Here's Jesus' answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So there it is. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have. That's the idea there. That's the first commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And I would just propose to you that the second commandment flows out of the first commandment. You can't do the second commandment unless you're doing the first commandment properly. Okay? So there's a sense in which that your love for God then overflows in your love for others. The fact that you are united in Christ has a natural rippling effect to those around you. It, it just flows out. So the unity that we have in Christ is both spiritual and it is tangible in the lives of those who are real Christians. Their unity will overflow in love, in particular, for others. And that love for others is fleshed out. And here's just a list of the kind of things that we're talking about, all right? Honesty, kindness, courteousness, restraint, selflessness, patience, sacrifice, mercy. We can go on and on and on. Say, why is it that God's people would be that way? It could be someone's not a believer and says, you know, in order to get on with people, I've got to be kind. And that's a kindness that is, that is fleshed out of a, of, a, of a sinful heart that simply wants to get along. It's not a kindness that flows out of being united in Christ. There's a difference. The reason we're kind is because if we're not, our conscience is smitten by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Because that's who we are if we're God's children. These are things that are natural for God's children. They should be part of who we are. And so when we are united together, it has natural implications. It's tangible. It's spiritual. It's tangible. The third thing here is this. It's evangelistic. It's evangelistic. Continue on reading in that passage so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jump down to verse 23 again. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So the unity that comes by way of witness, and uh, this unity comes by way of witness and produces the fruit in belief. So this unity then ripples out and actually impacts the world in such a way that they are saying, hmm, who is this Jesus? Who is this one that you love? Who is this one that you are united to together? 
So it's not simply a unity where we can all experience love. A love, you might want to say, that is fashioned and shaped by the philosophy of the world. Isn't, I mean, isn't that the uniting word today? We should just love. It comes in different forms. We should all tolerate. These are all words that are just kind of like collective words, but they, they mean all sorts of different things depending on the person that's using them. We are commanded to love, but the world's kind of love often um, is a kind of Whoville sentimentality. Right? Guys ever watched um, The Grinch? All right? You know, and he stands up there up in his little place, and he's like, he's, he's just like, you know, he's frustrated because they're all so kind to each other, right? They're all, you know, you know, all the Christmas trees are all broken. He went down there and destroyed the village, and they're all standing around singing their little songs together and all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of like sentimentality that, oh, that this is the Christmas season cheer kind of a thing. No. That's not, that's not the kind of, of love that's being talked about here. The kind of love the world desires uh, makes you feel warm and happy inside. Well, in his case, it's warm and tingly, I think is the word he used, right? A a love that masks our conscience that is seeking to expose our sinful nature. It's the kind of love that is seeking its own. That's not the kind of love that God is desiring for us to have. So ultimately, the world's unity is a unity that comes at the expense of truth. And see, this is, this is what happens. You, you say, here's the real Jesus, but the world's philosophy creates up their own Jesus, so to speak. And they might even reject Jesus. But if they have Jesus in there, it's typically a Jesus who doesn't condemn because Jesus would never judge anyone, right? Well, hang around a little bit until the end of the book, all right? It's just, it's not an honest reading of what God's word says. But it's the kind of Jesus that is presented in this world. And so we've got to be careful here because it, it, it does get in even to, you know, good, wholesome Christian believers who are deceived by that kind of thing. So, oh, well, see, Jesus wouldn't do that. It's like, well, no, he does. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of unity, this world's unity is a kind of unity that chooses to ig- ignore God's truth about his holiness, about man's condition, and the need for a redeemer. Now, friends, it is the most loving thing I can do to you to say, listen, you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you are going to end up in hell. Behind that message is a love for your reconciliation with God to hear the the solution to that problem. If I didn't say that to you and said, hey, listen, God loves you. Don't you want to be in your life? You're like, well, of course I want him to be in my life. If he loves me, I want to be loved, right? But you're never dealing with your sin. And so there's no spiritual transaction. There's no conversion. There's no regeneration. All that's happened is this, I have this, this kind of warm, fuzzy guy who's the big guy upstairs who comes to my aid every time I want him. But it's a loving thing to say, listen, here's your sin problem, and here's why Jesus came, because God is holy and you're not. And because God is holy and you're not, your end is destruction and hell. But Jesus sends this mediator, his son, Jesus Christ, who not only comes and proclaims the gospel, but is the solution and the satisfaction of what is necessary for that gospel to take place. And if you believe in him, you can have life, abundant life, everlasting life. Okay, This is what true unity is all about, and this is the kind of love that fleshes out of that kind of unity. So if you ignore the fact that God is holy, 
We sang a song here today that included the word God's wrath. <gasps> he mentioned wrath. You know, this is the problem. American Christian culture does not like the true message of the gospel. They want the good bits, not the whole thing. And friends, we need the whole package. And the whole package includes the good bits. And they certainly shine brighter when we understand why they're there. Okay? So the goal of the world's unity is conformity to the world standards, to the spirit of the age, to the temporary cultural societal fads of the day. And it's a unity that will be like the chaff, which is blowing in the wind. It is a unity that changes over and over and over and over again. Now, friends, the unity that God has for us that we experience is evangelistic. It's rooted in the message of the cross that God is holy, that he sent his son Jesus Christ, that through believing in his name we can be reconciled to God. So this evangelistic unity is a spiritual unity. It's a tangible unity. Um, ultimately, it is an evangelistic unity because it, it witnesses to others this, this Jesus who is the solution. Now, let's remember that as we look back on this prayer, we can be sure that Jesus' prayer has been answered. So we're studying it as Jesus is praying for it yet to take place. But as we look back on this, we recognize that it already took place. It's not that now we need to say, okay, Lord, may the church be one based on this passage. The church already is one. The Holy Spirit has come. So now we live in light of that unity that we have because of the Holy Spirit's gelling of all believers together. The kind of unity that is prayed for is typically the unity that is manufactured, that is created to satisfy this longing to somehow stand before people and say, hey, don't we look good? The gospel is good news, whether we all gather together with some facades and proclaim somehow this, this positive image of the church. Now, granted, we don't want to be obnoxiously rude. We're not talking about ignorance. We're not talking about foolishness here. But the moment we unite with those who do not believe in the Jesus that the apostles taught is the moment that we are, we are complicating and confusing man who is looking for a true solution. And that's why the gospel is so important, that we understand it, that we know it, that we're able to proclaim it so that we're not confused. So there is a practical unity that says we need to live out what it means to be united in Christ. That means that our, we, we are going to overflow with attitudes and behaviors that honor him. There's a practical side of that, that God has placed us in this godless world to be a testimony, to be evangelistic. And here's the fourth thing then that kind of flows out of it too. It is a unity that is persuasive, okay? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And so it is, it is that, the question here is this. Is it a visible unity that must exist before belief can or will take place? The answer is no. It is a unity that is supernatural and therefore the basis of all belief. In other words, we don't have to wait for everyone to say, I oh, see, now the church is united, now I'll believe. No, it, it's a spiritual unity that, yes, 
when embraced, is tangible. Yes, is evangelistic, but also persuades. So we persuade with words. It's the gospel message, but get this. We also persuade with lives lived for the glory of God. And I'm not saying that all we need to do then is to live our lives for the glory of God and that solves the problem. Both of those things go hand in hand. And there was a kind of an error and a move within the body of Christ that said, you know what, just, if you just live your life before people, therefore they're going to believe. It's like, well, they also need to know the message of the gospel or they're going to get confused with a wrong kind of Jesus. All right? That's the first section here. It is the glory of God on earth and Jesus prays for the unity of all who would believe. In other words, the unity of that church. Secondly, now, there is this glory of God in heaven. This glory of God in heaven. And let's read now verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus here is talking about him being in heaven. The, the, if you read this prayer, you see that Jesus is praying this prayer from the perspective that he has already gone through the trial of the cross. And he's praying for his people. And he's talking about being in heaven with his Father. So Jesus is praying for the work of his glory to be finished in those whom the Father has given him by their presence in heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul, in Philippians 1.6 um, says this to the Philippian church, and I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus here then is praying for the ultimate desire of any believer, and that is to stand in heaven in the presence of Christ. We need to think through the significance of that because in that presence, his glory is going to be seen. So through John's gospel, we have seen his glory on earth. Shortly, as we go through the gospel, we will see his sacrifice and his triumphal resurrection. We will also see one day Jesus face to face if we are his children, because we'll be in heaven with him. So on earth, we are comforted by the fact that he is with us, right? I mean, that just, that's a reality of of our relationship with God, we are comforted by the fact that he is present with us. And the disciples have been comforted by Jesus' presence. That's why they're so shocked, so to speak, that Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm departing. I'm going to leave you, but I am leaving you with another one just like me. His name is, is, is the, the counsel, the comforter. He is the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'll be with you ultimately to the end of the age when he gives his great commission, Matthew 28. Um, 20, I think it is. But in heaven, we have the promise and assurance of our being present with him. We're thankful for his presence now, but we will also have the promise of our presence with him in heaven. What will it be like to be with him in heaven? Now let's go to a few passages of scripture and to think about this. 1 John 3.2. 1 John 3.2. John again says this, Beloved, so he's speaking to believers, 
We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Okay? So when that day comes, when the Lord, we can say this, when, when either the Lord comes or we are ushered into his presence, there are two specific things that are going to happen. Kind of work backwards in this verse. First thing is this. We will see him as he really is. Although we have, we have been given all we need from God to know him and to be reconciled to him through his word, by what he's breathed out for us, we are still limited in our understanding of the majesty of Jesus. But when we are taken into heaven through death or his return, we shall see him as he really is. We'll have full and complete understanding. We will be united with him. We will, we will be with our spiritual family. We'll be enjoying our homecoming. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, you typically think of what? Love. But look at the end of that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's pick it up at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And what he's talking about here is the reality of that future completed state when we are standing in the presence of God I was like a child before but now I'm standing in the presence of God face to face I have I have had these might want to say this fogginess kind of removed from my eyes and I can see clearly now who Jesus is not only that though that fuels us to understand the second part in first John 3 2 that we will be like him all right, we will see him as he is, and we will understand that we then are like him. We are not him. Is that proper English? But we will be like him. Now, we have been adopted into his family. We don't deserve to be part of his family. God has sought us out, and he's brought us into his family. We have been adopted, and we have been given citizen rights, family rights. We have an inheritance, right? But you heard a few weeks ago when Jim Daggs was here. You have been given that inheritance even though you are adopted. You've been brought in. 2 Peter 1.14 talks about, sorry, 2 Peter 1.4 tells us that we are partakers of the divine nature. And I think when we're in the presence of God, the reality of what that means is going to be made clear. Then now 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just read a few verses here from this chapter, beginning at verse 42. So it is with the re resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is no spiritual body. I just want you to think about those words. And I want you to think about how things change when you're standing in the presence of Jesus with him in heaven. Your body will be imperishable. In other words, it will not wear out. It will not grow old or be subject to any kind of sickness or disease. It will be in glory. The idea there is that it will be in honor. It will be glorified. The idea of in power means in contrast to weakness, now our bodies will be strong. They'll be full. They'll be complete. It will be spiritual. Not a non-physical, but a spiritual. And Listen, friends, when, here, here's the point. When we stand in the presence of Jesus, we will be complete. Let me just pause for a moment and just make sure we understand this. It's not that the idea of heaven is pie in the sky. Those whom we love who have stepped from death into heaven are celebrating their glorified bodies, are celebrating the fact that they were weak, but now they're strong, are celebrating that what they are now is imperishable. They're not suffering anymore. Friends, that is an incredible reality that we look forward to. It's not just something that we bring up at funerals or hard times just to kind of make us feel better. It is reality. And Jesus here is praying for that reality. Go back and look at it again. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. That's his longing. That's his desire. It's not just, okay, Father, I went to the world and you know, I hung on a tree and I died. And I, all right, now I want to go do my own thing. Where's my golf clubs? He's in heaven and he's longing for those who are his family to come and be with him. And those who have come. It's not just, oh, they were welcomed to heaven. It's just, you're home. You're here. You're with me. This has been my heart's desire. This is my prayer. First Corinthians 15, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be like him. Now, we will not be God, but we certainly will be in the family of God, bearing the image of God, having the likeness of the man of heaven. And so we are, at that point, biblically complete in him, in his presence. Then there's the glory also that is through eternity. Verse 25 and 26, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, which, by the way, is the definition of the world, I know you, and these know you that, have, that, that you have sent me. So there's this idea of knowledge. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so the essence of the heartbeat of God is that the Father is righteous, the world does not know him, and Jesus has been sent to make the Father known, i.e. to glorify the Father, and to reveal himself as the Messiah, in other words, to glorify himself. Going back there to the first part of this, this prayer. This knowledge is the knowledge of his will, that the Father has sent Jesus, of his character, that he had made known them to his name, of his love, which he is having with Jesus as well as with those who believe. This is an ongoing message Jesus is, communi- uh, uh, is committing to so that men would be reconciled to him. That's what he's saying here. I have, I, verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will what? Continue to make it known. How does he continue to make it known? Because of the fact that he communicated to the apostles and the apostles communicated to others and it transfers and here we are 2013 in Castro Valley and I as simply a messenger of God's word, a mouthpiece for his text, is communicating that same love and that same message to all who are here within these walls. That is Jesus speaking through his messengers through the ages to us. This is the ongoing message of the gospel. This is the glory of God through eternity. The love that Jesus had with the Father in the past is made known and will continue to be made known through the message of the good news of the gospel so that those who are alienated from God because he's holy can be reconciled through Jesus Christ and can live their lives abundantly in that new life in him. Now, um, I want to do something right now that's, that's going to be a little bit more of a process for us. I want to kind of wrap things together here so that we can visually see what Jesus is helping us understand. Okay? So I want you to look up to the screen. I just want you to see what I'm calling the circle of or the, cir- or the fellowship of love. And you see here, this is an eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing in eternity past. They don't create the world, and they don't create man because somehow they're lonely or lacking or they have a hole in their heart, right? In their wisdom, in their desire to accomplish their own will, they have created this world. And that world ultimately is in rebellion against against, uh, God. And so the Godhead sends one of them, the Son, to the world. A sinful world in need of a redeemer. Then we will see, as we move on here, that as Jesus comes, he begins to minister to these disciples, right? Who are in the world, and his ministry for three and a half years is ultimately about teaching these disciples. It's about ministering to the disciples, about fashioning and shaping them so that when he departs, that these disciples then will carry on his ministry but first of all, that they would believe. And so when they believe, they are now brought into this circle of love, so to speak. They are in him. They are in the Father. Now, that doesn't mean that they are God, but they're brought into this family of God. You with me so far? Now, this is where the disciples are. 
They're in the family of God, but they're also still on this earth. Well, what are they going to do on this earth? They are going to communicate the gospel message that Jesus gave them, and they spread that gospel message to the world. And ultimately, as the disciples leave, as they die, that message to believers continues because believers then come to faith, they're brought into the family of God, and there's this constant now ministry that is going on. But it all starts with the Godhead. And the disciples coming, spreading the good, the good news. And now we are in this kind of middle set, so to speak, in the family of God, ministering in the context of the world. That's what Jesus is praying for. This is his longing desire here, that he would be glorified as the Son to do what he needs to do on the cross, that as he leaves, the disciples would step in and be proclaimers of the good news, but do it in a united way, that the Father would keep them, that the Father would usher them in their ministry to do what they've been called to do, and ultimately that there would be those who would believe who would also then be brought into the family of God. That's what he's praying about. And he wants that all to be accomplished. And he's leaning on his Father during that time in preparation for his arrest, his trial, his beating, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. A few concluding thoughts here. Number one, what is the essence of this prayer? What is the essence of this prayer? I want to kind of boil it down talked about it a little bit, let me say it again. The glory of a holy and righteous Father. You see that. He's called the Father in this verse, or in this prayer. He's called Holy Father. He's called Righteous Father. The glory of a holy, righteous Father. The glory, secondly, of a humble, submissive, and obedient Son. Jesus is praying as the Son to the Father, about the plan that they both agreed on before the creation of the world. And Jesus is humble, he's submissive, and he's obedient to the end. And then about the glory of a united, fellowshipping, redeemed people. The glory of a united, fellowshipping, redeemed people. These are the people who have examined the evidence, have believed, and now have life, eternal, eternal life, abundant life, and I'm adding another word here based on what Jesus said, intimate life, because we are in him. He is in us. We are united to the Godhead through the gospel. That's the essence here of this prayer. The second question is this. What is the message we need to embrace? There's four things I want us to think about here. Four things. Number one, there's a united message. We are united by the message sent from the Father to the Son, preached by the apostles, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other good news. Now, friends, there's a lot of pseudo-gospels out there. And one of the best ways, say the best way, 
to be able to see a pseudo-gospel is what? To know the true gospel. Now, there's a lot of soft ways of talking about the gospel that we can settle on, but I want to encourage you in your walk with God, spend time reading God's word, spend time looking at some resource that would help you clarify to clearly understand what the gospel is. Secondly, since Jesus prays for unity, we who have experienced that unity can and should take seriously the uniting of ourselves together as a local gathering of believers. See, we don't come to unite. We're already united. The united come to unite around things that they are united about. Okay. So there's a need here, not for American individualism. There's a need here for a different kingdom mentality. Our citizenship here is not USA. Our citizenship here is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom demands corporate gatherings, corporate workings, corporate interaction because of the nature of the body of Christ to be together because we're already united. And so we're united together and we're living our lives, being fleshing out that unity together for his glory. The third thing is this. Our need for prayer. I just go back to you know, the first time we looked at John 17 and just remind you of what we talked about there, that Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray over and over and over again. And certainly, if Jesus needed to pray, we who are sinful, although saved, also need to pray. Pour our hearts out to God. And not just a prayer of, Lord, give me this, give me this, give me this, but a, a time of communing with him that we can be resolved that he is sovereign, that he knows best, and that although we have thoughts and desires that we ultimately want to be conformed to his will, and through that time of prayer, we are fashioned by him to take whatever he brings our way. We need that. Life is not easy. Life is full of difficulties and trials. In the past month in our church, we've experienced a lot of that. And we need to embrace this, this, this reality of prayer and to learn to lean on the Father. The last thing is this, a fantastic promise, heaven. My friends, heaven and the prospect of heaven is no small thing. And I know we talk about it generally, but I just... This morning, I just felt impressed to kind of take it to some places where some of the realities of heaven could be touched and tasted and seen by us. Because there's no small prospect. And certainly there's a, there's a longing for us to be in heaven, but do we understand what heaven is like? And sometimes I wonder whether we actually long for it. Are we just like, oh, I, I really would like to stay here longer because of this and that and the other. And it's not wrong to be with family or to to enjoy this world that God has created because it is, there's a beauty to what God has created even though it is tarnished by sin. But friends, we do not comprehend heaven. 
and what glimpse we have, if we could somehow break through that and see it more fully, we would see that life here is nothing compared to heaven. And that in the presence of the Lord, we will not be sad because we've left this place. I know it's hard, especially when we've had loved ones who have gone on. They're in the presence of Jesus. We miss it. We long to be with them. But they truly are home. My friends, that is a promise, that is a blessing, that is a joy for we who are called his children. And that is what Jesus prays for over 2,000 years ago for us. (laughs) And we are blessed because of it. Lord, help us today to rejoice over the implications, Lord, of the gospel taking root in our heart. Lord, for the unity that we have because we are your children that only comes by virtue of what you've done. Lord, by the, the, the comfort of the promise of heaven that we'll be with you. And Lord, to humble ourselves so that we can be used by you as you continue to proclaim the message of good news through us. Your earthly work is not yet done. You've not brought us home, Lord. So help us to be faithful in our living and, Lord, in our unity and fleshing out that unity. For your glory, we ask. In your precious holy name.